Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols. This is episode number eight, and uh, I'm here, as uh, you probably know, in Atlanta. And Dad, uh, obviously, you are joining us once again from Honolulu, Hawaii. Our listeners hear us. I see you. And Dad, it's great to see you. Well, it's good seeing you, too. And I'm glad to be back, enjoying our little episode and our little adventure in uh, do-it-yourself broadcasting. Exactly. Uh, Do-it-yourself broadcasting. That's a great way to put it. Uh, Last time, we talked about uh, Henry David Thoreau and Walden, and that was fun. And this episode, I want us to take a little bit of break from the literature and uh, talk a little more generally about the topic of reading. And uh, I'd like to begin with a little bit of dissension already. You do not like the title of this podcast episode, which is The Art of Reading. Is that right? I don't dislike the title because once you say the art of something, it always has a little panache to it. And, you know, people think uh, we're dealing with something that's a little sophisticated. But I don't think reading is an art. I think reading is an experience. Art is something you make. Reading is something we do and we experience. And so I don't think it denigrates anything from the reading experience to talk about reading as an experience. But uh, to call it an art is something I think uh, uh, a step too far for my taste. That's all I can say about that. It would be a little bit as if uh, you were watching a painter paint and regardless of the... uh what he produced, calling his painting art would seem a little strange. It's actually what he produced that is the art, right? Well, the process, of course, is the artistic process is uh, the involvement of the painting itself. But I'm saying reading is, okay, before we go on, I I feel I would be derelict if I did not introduce one of the classic uh, sayings that I used to, I used often in my classrooms about uh, Sir Francis Bacon, the great English uh, writer and uh, figure in the 16th century England, he said, uh, reading maketh a full man, conversation a ready man, and writing an exact man. Now, of course, we have to adjust for the gender distinction, but Mm. the idea is that you read to accumulate knowledge and information that make of the full man conversation the give and take with others gives you a certain kind of edge and that writing makes you an exact person so that those are the, the and that's all part of the reading and writing process that's a great quote i'm sorry but i have to use it that's wonderful well i'm sorry in a sense you haven't used it earlier because Part of the genesis of the podcast was the conversation bit to actually talk about the things, at least that I'm reading and that you've already read. And uh, that that seemed good to me. 
and helpful to me. And uh, so I like Bacon's quote very much. And uh, that's, by the way, here's to throw in a, another little uh, pitch for the uh, humanities and uh, college instruction. That's the advantage of a college classroom. You know, you have the give and take between the instructor and the students, the students and the instructor, back and forth. And that often, you know, is, uh, is the most important and the most exciting part of uh, the teaching experience and the learning experience. That's why, as an aside, I'm not a great fan of online learning. <laughs> right. Well, um, and yet online learning is, uh, is really taking over. But, Dad, I think the reality is that so many students stop reading after school. And uh, we want to make something of an apology to keep on reading. And uh, so I want to ask you a few questions about the art of reading. And I simply am calling it an art because I, I recognize there's probably more to reading than more people think. I think the process of reading is important. And I think that a lot of people don't really know how to read well. And because they don't know how to read well, what they get out of reading isn't as deep and as helpful as it really could be. And so I'd, I want to have a, a short conversation about that. Does that sound okay? That sounds fine. And, and not to uh, belabor a little disagreement or dis uh, in terms of title, when I say reading is an experience, like all experiences, you know, the more you have the better you become at a particular, you know, activity. So if you learn to read early and you keep reading, you get better at reading. And one of the three, one of the things I think you're, you're talking about is that young people or people who don't have a lot of experience reading, once they have to know, once they no longer have to read, have never really developed the skill or the facility. And so it does not become part of their, of their lives in their uh, mature years. Well, tell you what, before um, the, the conversation that I want to end on is how to promote reading when there are so many distractions like never before, uh, distractions in the form of, you know, Netflix, as well as Twitter, as well as uh, just uh, numerous short online articles. I think all of these chip away at the hard work of reading. So I want to end with that. But first, Dad, let me just ask you a few questions about your reading habits. So how do you decide what to read? How do you decide which, and let's, I'm thinking here about books for the moment. How do you okay. decide what book, what books to read? Let's, uh, let me say, give a little bit of a context here. People read differently. We all read differently at different times in our lives. So I'm not the same reader today that I was when I was uh, talking about my life in, say, Stone Mother. Mm -hmm. When you're a young person, you're starting to read and you're reading, you're reading for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, you're reading for pleasure, you're reading for escape, you're reading for, you know, uh, understanding or information. When you get older, you don't read the same way. It's to say, you know... Uh, it is just a, it's just a fact of life. I mean, and so uh, I can't say that there is uh, a question of how do I decide what to read. For example, in my younger years, when I was, okay, even not beyond uh, adolescence, 
uh, well, let's say even in adolescence, when I started go when I was going to the public libraries, of course, as a literary type, I knew something of writers, and I picked writers that I thought I'd heard of, and that were you know uh, that I and when I started to read, I, I became interested in, and then I kept reading them. For example, John Steinbeck. You know, I knew of Steinbeck. I picked up some Steinbeck books, and then I got very interested in Steinbeck, so I went on the Steinbeck Jack. I did the same thing with uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Thomas Wolfe. So as a young person, you know, I was reading for uh, to to give myself the the uh, the cultural background of a literary person, so I would know these writers that I had heard of. And uh, that's how I would I would read. When you get older, then I started reading. Once I was in, say, graduate school, then you're reading more for your professional career. You know, what do you have to know? Uh, who are the writers you have to be expect? Who are the writers you're expected to know if you're going to be a professor? You see, so you're reading to a program, so to speak. Later on, right when I came to reading for my own, you know, for my own pleasure, I'm no longer advancing in the academic world. Uh, then I would start reading for, uh, you know, just to satisfy interest. For example, I remember I was on sabbatical and I said to myself, and, and I had read of a new edition of uh, War and Peace by uh, these, these two translators who were doing a lot of new translations of Russian literature. And I thought to myself, you know, I've never read War and Peace. I'd read Tolstoy, but I'd not read that novel. And it's like one of those big bucket list, you know, items that you think, well, I should have read War and Peace. And so I bought that book and I read it uh, simply for the pleasure of, well, it turns out for the pleasure of the book, but for, the, you know, satisfying myself that there are books that I still hadn't read and that I wanted to continue read. Now, this doesn't get into the more, shall we say, less... Less hot, less intellectual, and less sophisticated artistic right. works, which I read for pleasure as well. I love how you talked about different seasons in life, and I don't know if you know this, but when I was younger and I was growing up in Oregon with my mom and stepfather, uh, Dick Messick, who uh, has been in my life since I was five years old. I don't know if you know this, but uh, he he is a voracious reader, and uh, when he was in his twenties, he was just digesting books like Louis L'Amour and Robert Heinlein and Frank Herbert. So a lot of, uh, I think it's Frank Herbert of Dune, a lot of science fiction, a lot of these cowboy mm -hmm. Westerns. And I, I never got into the Westerns for whatever reason. But as a kid, uh, I noticed him reading all the time. And uh, that got me reading. So even though I would say the, well, uh, now I don't read as much in that genre. I read very little in that genre. Uh, I was really helped by that model of reading, and that was my diet for a number of years. I did not know that about Dick, and I'm very, I'm very glad you uh, you uh, brought this up. And I think that's another example. That would be another illustration of one of the points I think you might be interested. You you might be wanting to make. That reading is also something we model ourselves on. We model ourselves on people who are who are readers. And, and for example, if you and it's, it's just cultural. I remember the first time I went to uh, England, and uh, I know this when you ride the public transportation in England, whether it's the tube or the buses, there are always people with books on their laps. 
Well, you go into the into into American public transportation, you don't see that that often. Now, of course, everyone's got phones, but that was because uh, England and the United Kingdom had a much more literate culture and supported the much more literate culture than America has traditionally done. And so you saw that. And that was another way in which people read and have the experience of reading. I'm a little amused as I'm talking about my reading as a child, Dad, because you probably remember that when I was very young, I think younger than 10, you sent me C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. Do you remember that? Uh, vaguely. I, it's something I might have done, but I can't recall doing it exactly. And I guess, I guess my question is, were you aware of C.S. Lewis as the great 20th century apologist of Christianity? Yes, I was. Did you have any idea what you, you, you were? That's not why I, was I know you were just sending me great stories. I was sending you stories yeah, that well, were very well known. And, uh, you know, I, I think reading is important and I don't, I don't think it matters what you read, to be honest. I mean, I don't think you have to, you have to inculcate your children with specific kinds of books. I think anything that they read is, uh, is, is, uh, phenomenal. The fact that they're reading is 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 uh, is itself the the most important experience. That's why I don't believe in censoring books for children. Well, that's a that's a conversation that I want to have another time as we talk about some of the books that uh, that were censored in the 20th century that uh, you have assigned me to read. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation in the future. But so, Dad, the only answer that you've given me to the question of how do you today decide what to read is to satisfy interest. Is that, do you have anything else to say about how you decide what book? Because frankly, dad, we all have limited time and there's a lot more books than we have time to read. So I'm just curious, how do you decide which book to actually pick up? Okay. I, I've always been interested in, uh, in mystery Now I'm not a mystery fan. I'm not like Rachel and Agatha Christie fan, but, uh, Uh I was a great fan of Raymond Chandler, and uh, I loved uh, Dashiell Hammett. But I'm not, you know, one of those hardcore people who reads the uh, the uh, the new detective stories coming out. But if there is someone who does write mysteries, but on a level that brings them what I think of as more sophisticated, I'll follow them. Like I'm a big fan of Philip Kerr. Philip Kerr was an English author who created a German detective named Bernie Gunther. And he has a whole series of novels which are set in Germany during the 20th century. They are, they are, they're wonderful. And uh, I would say one of the things that makes me choose an, a writer is if it keeps my interest. I know that the book keeps my interest. If it's narrative and it's uh, a well-told narrative and it's a story that's intriguing and it's, uh, by a person, an author who has insight into human psychology, then they've got me. And Philip Kerr is one of those. And I would recommend to all our listeners to pick up the Berlin Watt trilogy. All right. That's, that's helpful. And that's interesting. And of course, you're describing your experience now as someone who's not, uh, not as involved in academic work as you once were. So I assume that when you were in the thick of researching, for example, Robert Louis Stevenson, that part of your work was reading secondary sources about Stevenson, secondary sources about uh, 19th century 
literature. And that was just, that was a different season for you. But I assume that your reading habits fit your academic interest at the time. Okay. Let's say I have always been, I've always, from the very start, from the time when I was a child, really, I've always been interested in in fiction and narrative. And when I was going to uh, graduate school, you know, and, and I had always read writers who were very strong, popular writers, you see. And I found it very difficult as a graduate student to accept the fact that from the point of view of the academy, popular writers were not really considered serious writers because I kept, I enjoyed them so much. I loved John O'Hara. I loved Erwin Shaw. You know, I loved Somerset Moore. Why did the academics think that these weren't important writers simply because they were popular? So that was one issue that always stayed with me. And maybe it's one of the reasons I wound up coming to Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Academic writing or scholarship is a different is a different thing altogether. Most people don't read academic writing. Academics are the only ones that read academic writing, and they don't read it for pleasure. They read it for information, and that's why you know I myself, and I'm going to toot my horn just a slight, slight sound here. I always try to make have at it. I always try to make my academic writing readable. That is, you did not have to be an academic to read it, though only academics would pick it up. But if you were not an academic right. and you happened upon it, you could read it. I mean, that was a big I, – I worked very hard to do that. The trouble is in the academy, it doesn't, it doesn't count for anything because most academics can't write. And so academic scholarship, that's, that's the name of the game for academics, and it's the way in which scholarship is, you know, is advanced, you know people do do scholarly work and you know this is the advancement of knowledge most of the time so you have to read this you have to know it but even so i've always been a little bit leery of it and frankly because most of the time i consider it uh too difficult to get through too too tedious to get through and uh i don't always feel it was it's worth as much as uh as <laughs> as it's cracked up to be well, let me let me uh, take a stab at answering that question. How do I decide what to read? I'm certainly at a different stage in life to the extent that uh, I'm not retired from my vocation, which is pastoral ministry. But when I think about my own reading, one way, one area that we hugely diverge, but I assume that I would be more in line with your grandfather, is that I very much read devotionally uh, every day. So as a as a Christian. Uh, every day I'm reading something from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the longest psalm, Psalm 119, is basically every stanza in that psalm is exhorting uh, the believer to meditate on, and there's a bunch of different words for it, the commandments of God, the words of God, Torah. And so for me, a lot of my life is spent reading the Bible and understanding it to be a word from God. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, that's certainly a remarkable statement, but you can imagine what a motivator it is for reading. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I see this even on, you'd see this on, on, on a college campus where you'd pass a table and there'd be a group of people there uh, doing Bible reading. I mean, that, that's a very common experience, but that's obviously very different. That's very different from the kind of reading I'm describing. 
It is very different, although that that's an interesting conversation uh, about, uh, on one hand, it's very different. On, on another hand, it's it's not very different. It's training you to, it's still a text that needs to be interpreted. Mm. But in any event, I also read out of necessity. So a lot, a lot of my reading, perhaps like you read academically, I'm reading out of necessity in preparation to teach. That's right. So I, I probably always have one, two, or three books that I'm not necessarily enjoying, but I'm reading because I need the information in those books. Another area that I read in is uh, a little bit like what you and I are doing is I read in community. So I'm constantly reading books with other people. Now that's, that's possibly in part because I'm a pastor, but I think I would be doing it even if I wasn't a pastor. It's just a good way to spend time with people and to talk about things. You mean like a book club? Like a book club. So there's a, I've got a, a young friend and he and I are reading a book on the 16th century reformation. Uh-huh. So is he going to be hugely interested in this? Uh, I'm not sure, but I'm interested in it mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about it. And then lastly, that leaves me the category of things I'm, I'm interested in. So right now I'm interested in Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I'm interested in a book by a, a literature professor named Karen Pryor Swallow or Swallow Pryor on on reading well. So that's that's basically how I decide what to read. And I'm typically reading several books at the same time. Well, that's uh, that's admirable. That's all I can say. One of the things I think might be interesting to, you know, just for, for your purposes is biography. Biography is a hugely popular form. Mm-hmm. Now, why is biography so popular? My theory, of course, is because it's, you know, it's a, it's an elevated form of gossip in one level. Although that's, that sounds a little too dismissive. Your brother, uh, Alec, is a great reader of biography. And I think he reads biography because he wants to learn about people who are great leaders or great thinkers and see what he can learn about their lives and how they they approached mm-hmm. problems. So it's an intellectual curiosity on, I think, Alex's part. Now, I don't read biography very much. Remember you sent me a copy of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Edmund Morris's biography of Roosevelt. Yes, you didn't read it? No, I read it. I read it. I read it partly because I Wasn't think it fantastic? it's a fantastic story. Roosevelt's a fantastic person, but here's my problem with biography, and this is going to amuse, I'm so, sure, some of our listeners. Most biographies are too long. They are filled with material that is unnecessary, but because the biographer has worked so hard and so assiduously to learn some obscure fact, you for sure are going to know it. It's going to be on the page. And the editor has no, there's no percentage in the editor saying we can cut that out because the people are going to buy the biography, whether they, whether it's there or not. I read a biography recently of Hemingway and I've read a lot of Hemingway biographies. I don't know why I picked this one up, but I'm obviously interested in Hemingway. And I thought, well, it was written by a woman who there had never been a woman writing a biography. There'd been women writing about Hemingway's wives, but, it goes on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself, doesn't the editor ever say we don't when need to end. know all this information, but it's in the nature of biography. So while well, you do learn something about people, perhaps I sometimes think it's uh, I'd like them to get a little more narrative art in their in their telling. Well, I think Morris does that. I mean, as far as biographies go, actually your grandson Jonah is reading that biography right now. And, uh, and he's really he's really loving it. 
Oh, Morris is Morris is terrific. Right. Yeah, I think he's unusually unusually good. Yes, I agree. With I that. picked up a biography of Winston Churchill, and I couldn't get through it. Finish the beginning of it. Yeah, because it was so detailed about World War II history mm-hmm. that it was at a level that just went beyond. Uh, beyond really my ability to understand what he was talking about. But dad, another question when it comes to reading, do you do anything either in the past or today to help you retain what you've read? I mean, is there anything, is there, are there any disciplines that you practice so that when you close that final chapter, I don't know, you're able to kind of remember why you valued that book or what you got out of the book? Uh, That's a good question. And I would never have thought of that. But the reality is probably my answer is no. I mean, partly because no. <laughs> I've never been I've never been that concerned about did I have to remember or know what I just read. I read it for pleasure and to learn in the process. Uh there are occasions, I mean, some books you read, they you know, they actually have an effect on you that you were not expected. One in particular, never I never, you know, that never left was uh, when I read D. Brown's "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." I was so uh, taken, overwhelmed by that book that uh, you know you say to yourself, "Well, you must know something about the history of Native Americans and everything." Well, we know a little bit, but we really know very little unless we've actually studied it in depth. And that book mm-hmm. was such a was such a transformative experience. That uh, when I closed that book, I thought to myself, you know, this is something that is so central to American history, American culture, that how could you not suddenly become aware of it? And after reading, it was after reading that book that when I was teaching American literature, I introduced Black Elk Speak into the uh, into the syllabus because it was my way of bringing something of what I had discovered into my own classes that uh, in whatever small way I could. Uh, so that's, that was, I just bring that book up as an example, as a, something that really can change and transform your experience. That's a good example. I think I had a similar experience with a book uh, that I mentioned, I think on a previous episode, but The Warmth of Other Suns a book about the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. And after I read that book, I remember feeling overwhelmed that there was such a big part of American history that I, mm-hmm. you know, sadly, as a historian, didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, when I taught a class at the Reformed Theological Seminary here in Atlanta, I taught a, cl- a, a short class on, actually it was on reading. Uh, I was on devotional reading in the Christian tradition. And I, I made sure to include a book of um, letters written by an, an African-American pastor, Lemuel Haynes, mm-hmm. just being aware that that was something that I had really neglected as a professor to uh, expose to my students. I think another book that really affected me was um, Thomas Hardy's The Mayor of Casterbridge, mm-hmm. which I've talked to you a lot about in the past. But I remember reading that as a teenager and part of it was, I think, the fact that it was the first, uh, it felt like the first real book that I'd ever read. And looking back, the other part that I think really affected me was I saw the arc of a man's life from sort of, you know, beginning to end. And it was such a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me think 
deeply. And so did I ever have to do anything with that? I mean, no, I just remembered that. Mm -hmm. But so many things I don't remember. So when I finish a book now, I actually go to a Word document and I spend a few minutes typing out my thoughts because, yeah, I I, want to be able to look back because not every book is going to transform me in the same way. And I don't want to forget. Right. Well, that's that's a good practice. I mean, I start. I I would do very, 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 very uh, sporadically uh, when I when I would come across something in a book that uh, a line that was really stood out. I would sometimes type it out and keep it as a uh, as a little uh, saying to try to remember, not to remember the whole book, but just remember those uh, those uh, sententia what they used to call sententia, those sayings, those thoughts that, uh, yeah. you know, are quotations, but that, uh, you know, like the bacon that you just never want to forget. You want to hold on to and see if you can retain Right, them. right. No, I was going to say one other book that it's, I remember having a great effect on me was the, when you, you mentioned the talk about history and black history, and it was C. Van Woodward's The Strange Career of Jim Crow, which was a very short book, a slender book, really. But it really suddenly uh, it, it, it opened up to somebody who was really ignorant of the whole history of Jim Crow in the United States in, in a way that uh, you could not avoid or you could not help but being moved by and learning from. The Strange Career of Jim the Crow. Strange Career of Jim Crow by C. Van Woodward. He was a very noted, distinguished professor of American history, I think, at Yale. I'm not sure where he taught. So, Dad, without getting down, without falling down the rabbit hole of what is good literature, something we talked about on our first or second episode, uh, what what are you hoping to get out of a book when you read it? You said you wanted to be of interest to you, but what are you hoping to get out get get out of it? What are you hoping to get out of that time? It's a lot of time spent. What do you What are you trying to get out of it? Well. That's that's a good question, and I hope I can give a tolerable answer. I'm still I still am a hardcore Aristotelian, and I believe that art is truer than history. That you learn from art in a way that you don't learn from history. I mean, Stevenson, you know, after he finished the short novel of Beach of Falesa, he wrote to a friend and he said, "You learn more about the South Seas if you read my little book than if you read a ha- you go through a library. You learn something about about the world, and you learn something about people." Uh, from a great writer, uh, a writer who's not may not be great that, but contemporary. I mean, anybody that uh, has not read Elena Ferrante, the Italian novelist, and her, you know, the uh, Naples tetralogy, is really missing something. I mean, I picked up that book because it was all the rage in intellectual circles, and I could not put it down. And I just went through all four books. You learn about people, you learn about relationships, and you learn about Italy from the end of the Second World War down through the present, where the whole shoe industry came from. When you read Philip Kerr, you learn a lot about German history without having to read a book about German history. You read about, you know, so I I, I do want to, I mean, that it's pleasurable in the sense that you're exposed to language that's used on a high level of uh, individual uh, individual expression. And in that process, you're learning and you're experiencing 
what the author is trying to convey. This is why I think people say, well, what's a beach read? You know, don't you, don't you just read a book for a beach read? I can't because simply because I find that if the sentences are too obvious and they're too clearly amateurish, I really can't read it. Now, that's not meant, I'm not saying that in a snobbish way. I'm just saying, and there's where my idea of experience goes. The more experience you have, the harder it becomes to read trashier material. You see, your taste suddenly right, starts be- right. um, becomes elevated. This is this is how you get a right. more sophisticated taste. You have more experience reading. And I think that our approach to reading is is fairly similar. Um, I obviously am always going to have a theological bent. So on one hand, given that so much of my reading is uh, devoted to theology, I certainly want better insight into God. Now, I can go to the Bible, and that's great, but I want to know what other people have said about the Bible. I don't want to just learn from writers uh, in my own era. I want to go back in time, and I want to understand how other uh, Christians, other theologians uh, have understood Scripture. So I want to learn more about God, and that's what I'm looking to get out of a book. If I think a book is particularly insightful uh, in that area, I'm thrilled about it. But also, I want to learn about God's creatures. And that's where I think your and my approach to reading is pretty similar, because I can read an author describing a human experience and be deeply affected by his or her ability to describe pain or sorrow or joy. And uh, I can be brought in, you use the word human psychology, I can be brought into the human mind in a, uh, a profoundly personal way. And I suppose that's why, although I do love art, um, I guess I'd rather stare at a page of words than stare at a painting. Um, I don't mean to pit the two against one another, but I love being taken captive by a story if it's revealing something of God's creatures to me, helping me better understand the world that I live in. So that's what I'm looking for. Well, I mean, that's what literature provides. I mean, that in, the, in, its, uh, in its best form, the, to instruct and to delight. I mean, that's the classic motto. Now, most people forget it. You know, most people spend most time, most people think of the delight, the pleasure, and they forget the instruction, but the instruction and the pleasure are supposed to be, you know, enmeshed one in the other. And so that the experience is, a, is, is, an, is ultimately a satisfying one. I mean. No, but dad, dad, what do you, what do you, my great love for whom? Hardy is a good example. I mean, Hardy is obviously yeah. not a devotional writer, but obviously his experience and his, his ability to create, you know, a world that, draws any reader in and has them, you know, suddenly learn what it could be like, what it's like for an individual is, 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 is overwhelming. Well, Dad, let's end with this. Uh, someone might say, all that sounds good and fine, but we're living in a visual age. We're living in an age where I can turn on the television and I have access to thousands of excellent documentaries and movies 
that are going to accomplish everything you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got screenplays. And so I can have my words and I can have my pictures too. So why bother turning off Netflix and opening a book when I can see uh, this adaptation on the screen and it'll move me to tears and it'll teach me something about human psychology, blah, blah, blah. Uh, How do you argue for reading in this uh, visual digital age? I'm not sure you can. I mean, because uh, what you say is absolutely, I think, accurate. And even my own case, I mean, I'll often, very often, will, you know, revert to a, a good film or a good, you know, episode on a, a drama rather than opening up a book and trying to pour through it. The competition is fierce. And because so many, so many writers who might have been writing novels are now writing screenplays uh it you know you can sort of say well i don't have to worry about it i'm not the good writers are all writing for the film or or writing for video but uh i i still say that the trouble is you have to you you know people have to be patient to read we and, and and reading is also an experience that involves the reader with the with the material Watching a movie is still essentially a passive experience. Reading is not passive. And you have to be you have to be engaged. Now you can say you're engaged watching a film, the film is drawing on your emotions, but not the same way because your mind is simply being uh, is 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 focused on the action and the characters and the stars and you're not really spending the time actually involved in the process of of uh i don't know how to de- how to describe it it's a different process and i would say therefore for people who are interested in you know mostly for younger people with children you have to you have to give your children the chance and the opportunity to be with books to enjoy books to feel that books are part of their experience in their natural life and then hope that you know if they if they if they like to read they will continue to do so and in that process they will never lose the habit it'll always be there i may not read as much as i did when i was younger but i still love you know a good serious you know book well you're making an argument for act something that's active versus something that's passive uh i think that's a great argument uh i think we could probably argue that unless that movie is, um, you know, 26 hours long. It's simply difficult to get to pack the same punch in uh, 90 minutes than you would get in a well-written novel. And of course, I have to add the theological component that I think one of the reasons why reading is so important, whether you're reading the Bible or frankly reading any words, is the reality of being made by a God who spoke words. You know, it's not... um it's not an, an accident that, uh, according to Jewish and Christian theology, God spoke. So I think in that sense, reading is something of a participation in the divine. It doesn't make you divine, but I think it's remarkable that synagogues and churches in 2019 are gathering a group of people together, sitting them down, and basically exposing them to words. And uh, who knows how many uh, institutions are going to be doing that 100 years from now? Well, let's hope there still will be some. Absolutely. And I think the, uh, 
the, you know, the universities will still be around. But I think it starts in the home. I think really, you know, you have a young child, you should be reading to that child every day, every night. And as the child goes, you know, make sure that they have a bookcase in their room so that they know books are part of their lives. And, you know, see what happens. I mean, you've got to provide the experience and you've got to provide the opportunities and then hope for the best. Well, Dad, those are great insights. Thanks for uh, sharing a bit of your wisdom on the art of reading art. It's good to talk to you. Talk to you soon. Take care, Aaron. Bye-bye.